Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to day 41 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge First Draft Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. This week we're talking about the awful, terrible, gross, messy middle that we never want to deal with, but we have to because we're writing a full book. In particular, we're talking about the clock, which is a very important concept in terms of how to hold up that middle. And we're talking about the clock with two amazing authors, Sabina Murray and Steve Yarbrough. Sabine and Steve, welcome to this morning. How are you doing this morning? Hi, Michelle. I'm awake. I've had my coffee. <laughs> I'm not completely awake, but that's probably too much for people at this time of morning anyway. So. Hello, <laughs> Boston. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. Wake up. How are we even here? I know. Awesome. Why are we up? Uh, Steve Yarbrough is the author of 12 books, most recently the novel Stay Gone Days, due out in April 2022. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Massachusetts Book Awards, uh, the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award for Fiction, the California Book Award, the Richard Wright Award, and the Robert Penn Warren Award. He's the son of Mississippi Delta cotton farmers, and he currently is the professor in the Department of Writing, Literature, and Publishing at Emerson College. Sabina Murray is the author of three collections of short stories and four novels, including her most recent, The Human Zoo, set in the Philippines under Duarte's presidency. Her third collection of short stories, Vanishing Point, uh, is due out soon. Murray is also a screenwriter and wrote the script for the film Beautiful Country, released in 2005. She has been a Michener Fellow, a Bunting Fellow at Radcliffe, a Guggenheim Fellow, Basically, Sabine has been a fellow everywhere possible. Both of these guys have extensive bios, um, but we're going to have to get to the show, right, guys? Okay, she also teaches at uh, Amherst, Massachusetts uh, in the creative writing program. Okay, the clock. This is an important idea. Um, Sabina, do you think about the clock as you work? Do you, do you talk about it in your teaching? Do you, what, what's, your, what's your idea about the clock? Are you like, oh, I don't need a I, clock. I'm <laughs> obsessive about clocks. I have a lot of people, of course, you know, this is EMS MFA. I'm dealing with a lot of um, first time novelists and that's my crazy dog ringing the bell. Don't worry about her. And I, I, um, I, I spend a lot of time just telling people, you know, it's really hard to figure out how to get through a, a novel. It's really hard to structure it. And, you know, we even have an exercise that we do where I make people think of different clocks. You know, like one clock could be a plant growing. One clock could be one that I always talk about is like, why is it when you're watching movies that they're always uh, people are always obsessed with baseball? And it's yeah. because you can track the beginning of the season like, oh, my God, you know, my team's actually going somewhere. And then all of a sudden, you know, and you can just nice. follow that whole season all the way through and it can go fly in the background. And as a result of it, all of our different characters who are just, you know, occupying the foreground, you know where they are in time, you know how much time has passed. So I do, you know, I do think that it's it's um, it's very helpful. I mean, of course, it can be a little didactic to look at it that way but I think once you can see it in that very kind of boring um, structured way then you can just bury it under all the pretty stuff and it does its work for you. Yeah I mean we talked about Philip Gerard's uh, architecture of light and how you oftentimes need to you need to be able to look at the stone and brickwork um, and need to be able to understand your tools that you're working with in order to even build a cathedral that's gorgeous and says all sorts of wonderful things and feels a certain way. Um, but you also need to meet to be a workman. So that's why we talk about these things. Um, Steve, how about you? For you, how is the clock important and how do you think of it? Well, I became aware of some some years ago 
that every one of my novels started somewhere between the end of July and the beginning, middle of August, and it ended somewhere between Thanksgiving and New Year's, and I couldn't figure out why it was that, and finally it dawned on me. I was following the structure of the football season, ah. um, and that gave it a, you know, an inherent beginning, middle, and end, and then the question was just how to get from one to the other. I would compare the situation, especially of a beginning novelist, with a runner who finds himself um, standing at the starting line on a 400-meter track, and the gun goes off, and the runner has to start running. The problem for her is she doesn't know how far she's going. Mm -hmm. She's running 100 meters, that's one thing. If she's running... 10,000 meters, that's a very different thing. And I think that learning, you know, having some conception of how far you're going is the first key to time management, because that's really what we're talking about. I also tell them that major inflection points can be the beginning of a chapter where in summary, you let time pass. And if you do it with a lot of detail, the reader feels it. If it's, if it's vague in general, you don't get the quality of time passing. Right, right. Good. So, um, and, and that sense of passage of time for the runner is both for the writer and the reader, right? right. I sure. mean, because otherwise, you know, we do, at least the reader has a sense of how long a book is if they're holding it, or they might be able to count it on their Kindle, or they might be able to see how long the audiobook is if they're listening that way. Um, but it's also important that way. Um, so just basically, the clock in general is a sense that time is passing. Um, and, and usually, well, okay, it can be can seen in the foreground that the character feels some pressure to do something toward their goal or to whatever they're doing because they, they only have a certain amount of time in which to get it done. Um, or it can work like both of these authors are talking about in the background, in, in, in the background story as against the sense of time passing um, so that we just feel some pressure on the story that adds some tension to the story and interest to the story. Um, a lot of clocks that I keep reading about and returning to our um, pregnancies, um, you know, because that, that has a nice, you know, and usually someone's pregnant and something's going to happen with a pregnancy. You can also forecast a clock like in Mrs. Dalloway, it's the party at, um, that she's expecting. So that once we know that there's a party upcoming um, and we know how close it is, uh, we that that sets the clock for other things that need to happen in the book until the party happens. Um, and so it just puts a little pressure on the pages, um, on the characters, on our reading experience. Sabina, how have you used clocks in your own work that you find effective or how have you had to wrangle with this? Oh, well, Usually, you know, you have to have people doing things in books. When I said one of the biggest problems I see with, um, with writing in general and with people starting novels is they can't find enough stuff for their characters to do. They know what, how they want them to feel. They kind of have a general sense of maybe how it's going to end. But minute to minute, you know, how many meals can people eat? How many doors can people go in and out of? And so, you know, if you can think of making your character do something and tying it in with a clock, it's, you know, it's a good thing to do. Um, a lot of, you know, I think about all the different, just really um, concrete, unromantic stuff 
different clocks, you can have people learning a language. So in the course, you have a lot of books where people will learn a language. You have a lot of movies. I'm thinking about this because I have this crazy puppy right now, but even Subaru, ad, I saw the Subaru ad and there's a puppy in an old car. And then as the dog grows, you know, you end up in more and more new cars and it's just a way of allowing them to pass time. So, um, yeah, I think, I think for me in the last book, Human Zoo, I had somebody writing a book because I was just like, what do you do? What does one do ever? And I'm like, well, I'm writing a book. So I had somebody writing a book in a book, which is something I said I'd never do. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that really answers the question, but these are just kinds of things you grapple with. Yeah. And so the, all of those things gives a sense of time that time that that time is passing in the book. Um, but is there so we have in the chat um, and I think there might be. Is there a difference between providing a mechanism in which we feel that time is passing in a book and time is pressing versus. Um, so is there a difference between a, a clock and a ticking clock? Um, that the characters, again, only have so much time to get something done or only have so much time in order to work something out. Steve, do you think of, do you work towards um, the ticking clocks? I mean, that might also veer, veer, veer more towards commercial fiction or commercial yeah. work. Um, I certainly have at various times. Um, in my, not my current novel, but my previous novel, there was, um, you know, a crime that had been committed. And uh, there was some urgency in, in finding out the nature of that crime because of how it potentially was going to affect a relationship between two characters who were both working for newspapers. Um, in my most recent novel, Stagon Days, that's a novel that covers over 40 years in yeah. the lives of two women. And so one of the things that I became aware of was, you know, before writing the novel, there were going to be huge gaps between one thing and another. Yeah. And so I found myself using some flash forwards, a lot more foreshadowing than I normally would. And the goal there was to avoid having to make the reader feel time passing in a real sense, but to, to have some idea of the scope of the novel from page one on. Um, and that was a peculiar problem for me that I hadn't encountered before. Yeah, yeah, it's particularly problematic with historical fiction that you have so much time passing that there doesn't feel to be a pressure on the page, mm -hmm. a pressure on the characters. Um, so you said you used it, you used flash forwards in order to kind of upset the flow of time so we wouldn't, we wouldn't kind of get lost in those 40 years? Yeah, there's a there's a moment about 10 pages into the novel where there's an encounter between two, two teenage girls. And there's a line where one of them thinks that she would remember this 40 years later when she lay in a Boston hospice. Right. And so that's, you know, the kind of surrendering of an outcome that I normally would not have ventured into, but it felt called for in that particular case. Yeah, so we're already set up to thinking of what the endpoint is and wondering, and then it also begins to ask questions. How does the, re how does the character get there? Um, and what is she thinking about? So it, it, it adds interest to those 40 years that we're gonna listen to. Um, Sabina, for you, do you, it, do you feel it, it, 
do you think of it as a, as a ticking clock or just a sense of time passing or both? I, do they work together? I think they work together. Um, I think it's really interesting hearing uh, Steve talk about just being able to move in and out of time because, you know, in a weird way. Okay. So I've been, I look at this thing in kind of in a time theory way. So physicists, weird time theorists say that uh, what we experience is time doesn't happen. Everything is actually happening at once and we order it in our brains. And in my mind, novelists understand this concept better than most people. Mm. We do that all the time in our work. We say, okay, the world happens in this kind of ticking way, but the way that I understand it is with memory coming in here and the structure of forward momentum happening here. And I'm just gonna put it all out in the order that I think my consciousness needs to absorb it. So what I think the clock does is it gives us that kind of that Newtonian time, the time that marches forward, you know, the great clock of God, tick, tick, tick. We understand that. And then because we're novelists, we can move in and out. We can go to the floor, we can flash forward, you know, as Steve is saying, or we can bring in memory, which is just time is our imposition of memory on the present. I mean, memory is our imposition of time on the present. So if you have a very boring clock moving through there, like a bus ride or road trip, then you can take your little, you know, novelist consciousness and you can chop everything up and you can rehash it. You can put anything anywhere you want and you're not going to lose your reader. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the ticking clock that really is the one I care about is the one that makes the reader put your book down. Right. You need that tension. Even if it's not popular fiction, even if it's high literary, if a person is struggling to read your stuff because you haven't thought about the tension, the different clocks in it, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. Right. And it also, so it also sets up expectation uh, and it is a, is a form of forecasting, I think. So just like you said, it, a, a bus ride could be terribly, terribly boring unless we know that the character is going to have to face something quite large at the end of that bus ride. Um, and so again, there could be that expectation set up that could add pressure onto the day-to-day -day or the minute-by-minute -minute, uh, moments of the bus ride. Um, and hopefully they're not just, you know, hopefully they might have to do something on the, on the bus as well before they face that. Um, Steve, what do you think? Like, um, so there's a, there's a question in the chat um, and this might be a little bit of what you talk about in historical fiction, isn't the clock already built in? Um, it can be if you chain yourself to the way events actually unfolded. Right. Um, and, you know, there's another theory of timing too. And, you know, I wrote one novel called Visible Spirits that was based on something that happened in my hometown in 1902 involving Theodore Roosevelt. And what I found really problematic was chaining myself to the, to the actual dates on which things happen. As yeah. for instance, Teddy Roosevelt shot a bear and that led to the teddy bear. And there are various theories about where that happened, but um, that was just killing me. And so I decided I would not, I would not limit myself to, you know, fairly, historical minutia, most people don't know that. Changing the date of Lincoln's assassination would be a, a very different issue. So Thomas Mallon didn't do it when he wrote about it. And right. Henry and Yeah, you can't so, really change when World War II happens. You can't right. move it to a different decade. Yeah. 
but it certainly can provide a structure as can almost anything. Uh, you know, as we said, a sports season, an election, um, which has been on our mind lately. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and in historical fiction, you can also use that pressure. So I always think about salvage the bones where we know that a hurricane is coming mm -hmm. and the characters also know that a hurricane is coming. So there's that pressure on everything, but the reader also knows how bad this hurricane will be. Um, so we're extra, extra worried. And so you can use, I've seen 9-11 novels working like that. I'm assuming that there'll be a lot of, I think there already have been pandemic novels that are gonna be working like that, that we actually know some major historical event is coming the characters don't know. And so there's that, that pressure on it that we're like, come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got to do this. Or you've got to be ready or you have to be prepared um, to, to make it work. Um, other clocks I think that work are someone's health. If someone's health is deteriorating, if they might be facing a surgery or facing, they've been given a time limit by their doctors. Again, it just adds extra pressure um, and a sense of time passing onto every scene in that in that book. Um, Sabina, would you you were you going to say something, or I'm going to ask you a question? If yeah, not. you know, it's just also I think that's absolutely it is fascinating to think the reason that we write historical books, and I write a lot of them, is because we wonder what it was like to be somebody who didn't know the outcome. Mm -hmm. That's that you know that's a fact of it, but that's like the meat of it. Um, but if we're talking about clocks, I also you know helpful. And um, pacing in novels is also this idea of kind of object tracking. And people use that a lot in the theater, yeah. um, but we use it in novels. You know, anything can be object tracking if, you know, the annoying neighbor keeps banging on your door because you're playing your Beethoven too loud, you know, at eight o'clock in the evening because she's trying to go to sleep. That's almost like if she keeps doing that at regular uh, times, that can also function as a clock, even though it's not something that's progressing. It's something that happens at regular intervals. So I think the idea of object tracking is really helpful um, if you're trying to get your stuff moving along. Good. And, and we assume that if we, re if we repeat that, that it's going to escalate and then we're worried that it's going to get worse. Like one day he's not going to just knock on the door. One day he's going to I don't know, blast in there with, with a mat. Yeah, <laughs> um, okay. So somebody in the, in the chat is asking object tracking. Yeah. Um, the way I'm not, I'm probably defining this incorrectly. So please don't, you know, pass this definition on to anyone. Just keep this definition. No one's yourself. listening. No one's listening. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think of it as when you have a certain thing that reoccurs at mm -hmm. regular intervals or irregular intervals. So, you know, it can be, a hat that someone always puts on when they're leaving the door. Mm -hmm. And then I, I expand it, I make it broader to, you know, things that just happen. A person, a neighbor showing up can be something that shows up once. And then if they show up again, as a reader, we begin to track that. And so if the person keeps showing up at regular intervals, we're tracking that person, we're tracking that object. So I, rather than listening to me define things poorly, just next time you're reading something of any length, just, just if you see something more than once, start tracking it throughout, mark it if you think it's working well and see the intervals between the pages and then be like, aha, you know, maybe I can do that in my own work. Yeah, and if I could add, um, if you get a chance, read the, the essay in Vladimir 
uh, Nabokov's lectures on Russian literature, in which he tracks Anna Karenina's red handbag all the way mm. through the novel. Nice. Nice. Good. And so that sense of pattern, I think, as well. And we've on this um, show have talked a lot about George Saunders' ideas of patterns and escalations um, and his essay about the school. So it also can set up a pattern um, that, and this might not be the way that it works in Anna Karenina, but a pattern that we would then, or I would hope, we would expect to be broken. Right. Um, so it's because it sets up an expectation. And then when you break an expectation, you kind of unmoor the reader, but in a good way. Um, and it's also kind of an expected surprise that we take a lot of pleasure in. Steve, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that you can see that in music when you play a riff on a guitar yes. the same way three times. And then the fourth time, you either subtract a note or add an interval or something, and it becomes emphatic. It's a way of making the reader or the listener sit up, look forward. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and we have a question in our chat for you. Um, I believe Steve said something earlier about summary exposition not being an effective way for the reader to experience time passing. Can you say more about that? I think you might have said the opposite. Well, yeah, I think I did say the opposite, but maybe I didn't say it very clearly. I think that the, the goal in writing a passage of summary to make time pass is, is not just to say it passed, but convey the flavor of time passing. And you can see it done as well as I've ever seen it in The Lady with the Pet Dog by Chekhov, where the main character, Girov, goes back to Moscow expecting that he'll just forget about his recent affair. We learn what he ate at dinner. We learned that um, he reads three Moscow papers a day while telling people that he never reads Moscow papers and so on. It's all in a paragraph and we aren't sure exactly how much time's passing, but it may be three or four months, but mm -hmm. it's the texture of the time that gets conveyed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder too, I keep thinking, especially when we talk about long time or coming a long period of time is that I think time itself or the passage of time itself for us as human beings carries a kind of inherent anxiety to it. Um, and so that might also add some tension to the reading experience that we, we uh, worry what is gonna become of these characters or what is gonna become of the situation health-wise, mentally, whatever, as, 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 the, as it all continues. Um, Sabina, do you, do you see, see this working very differently for you when you work on stories versus novels? Oh my God, so different. Yeah. Um, when I'm working on short stories, I notice that it's like I, it's like a deck of cards, you know, when everything is in the same suit. I think that um, so all the hearts are together, all the spades are together. That to me is more like short stories. Short stories can be very subject based. Yeah. And people think about a thought and then they kind of dance around in time around that thought and they are moving forward. But by the time you get to a novel, if somebody wants to think about something, you have to track that through it. So if there's a subject, if somebody is thinking about, I don't know, love, for example, they're not gonna wash the dishes like they might in a short story and track through all of their thoughts on love in marriage or something while they're washing the dishes. In a novel, they're gonna do that while they're washing the dishes. Like three weeks later, they're gonna wash the car. They're gonna pick up the same argument. 
you know, a month down the road, they're going to be caught in a flood. I don't know why I'm tracking water and love, but this is the kind of stuff you do in novels and you would track it throughout. So yeah, different to me, very different. Um, I like short stories because you can be really weird without losing the sense of time. You can just be completely bizarre and people are going to be able to follow you. I mean, I have a novel that's 500 pages long mm -hmm. and it's all in the present progressive. And that was a nightmare. We are not, we do not naturally live our lives moving. I mean, we don't, we can't record our lives as we live them. It's the least natural thing you do. It seems- And why did you feel you needed to do that for that novel? Because I didn't know why else you would bother to write a 500 page historical novel about when you knew what was going to happen. I had to right. make it so that everybody didn't know what was going to happen or else it wasn't worth it to me. Yeah. And then, it was over 40 years. So the big challenge was trying to make these guys age. So without you watching, knowing that they're aging. So they're kind of young guys are out there. They're, you know, doing their thing and then they're old and better. And I wanted to track that movement in the minutiae. So you get to the end, you're like, wow, they did age and you never see it. So there's also a woman in there. So, yeah. <laughs> and also the dreaded 40 years. Um, I know. <laughs> Once in a lifetime. I did it. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we do these things? We set up problems for ourselves to try to solve. And yeah. so I also think maybe the clock is um, it. So it puts pressure on your characters. It puts pressure on the pages. It, it gives us a sense of anxiety or intention. And it also is kind of a container um that holds your project and and you need that container and I actually think the water metaphor is useful because if you don't have a container it's going to go everywhere I mean you need something that that holds it together and gives it shape right yeah um Steve how do you think of it like is there such a thing in your teaching or in your own work that you've tried to find a clock and you found that it's just unworkable that it's broken or, or you've seen someone try to work on a clock and it's unworkable it's broken um yeah you know i've abandoned a number of novels and among the many reasons that you know that i've decided to put one down is that if as i've imagined the story it's lacking in tension it's there's not enough tension to carry us from beginning to end mm -hmm. and you could say that that's caused by any number of things failure to fall into the characters' lives, you know, deeply. But one of the many things that's caused it in my case is just not feeling enough tension, which is, you know, another way of saying the stakes aren't high enough. But that mm -hmm. is, I think that has something to do with timing as well. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said about the inherent anxiety of time passing. I'm 66 now. And that awareness hangs over me every day in a yeah. way it didn't when I was 45 or 35 mm -hmm. or 25. And so I think, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do as novelists is put life on the page. And a big part of that is the inexorable pressure of timing. We're all going to be gone in the end. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I was going to say, well, let's end on that. Let's end on that note. We're all going to die. We're all going to be yeah. die. We're all going to die. No, but again, but, but that it does put 
you know, you, you better damn well get this novel done, right? You better <laughs> get to your sure. desk. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do is give people a uh, reason to, to push forward and get to their desk today. Okay, um, I'm gonna let everyone go because what else could you possibly do on your Sunday except for get work done? Um, and uh, tomorrow we're gonna talk about obstacles, the crucible and other tension tricks. So we're gonna build on this with Desmond Hall and Erica uh, Ferencik. And if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, or rate our podcast. Uh, you can find it on Substack or other podcast platforms. And you can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Sabina and Steve, thank you so, so much for getting up early in the morning and helping us out with these ideas. Have you found yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, everyone. How you sift for a love in the sand, like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never